Section 11 of The Normans in Europe by Arthur Henry Johnson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 8. Earlier Years of William in Normandy, 1035 to 1049. We have now to trace the fortunes of one of the most remarkable men the world has perhaps ever seen, one of those who seem to be born to rule mankind. William the Conqueror is the best representative of the masterful Norman character. His life is one long recital of extended, successful struggles against opposing forces. As a babe, he had clutched the straw upon the floor and refused to release his hold, and this childish act is typical of his future life. Born to be resisted, yet fated to conquer, to excite men's jealousy and to awaken their lifelong animosity, only to rise triumphant above them all and to show to mankind the work that one man can do, one man of fixed principles and resolute will, who marks out a certain goal for himself and will not be deterred, but marches steadily towards it with firm and ruthless step. He was a man to be feared and to be respected, but never to be loved. Chosen, it would seem by providence, to fulfill its resistless destiny, to upset our foregone conclusions, and while opposing and crushing popular heroes and national sympathies, to teach us that in the progress of nations there is something required beyond popularity, something beyond mere purity and beauty of character, namely, the mind to conceive and the force of will to carry out great schemes and to reorganize the failing institutions and political life of states. Born a bastard with no title to his dukedom but the will of his father, left a minor with few friends and many enemies, with rival competitors at home and a jealous overlord, only too glad to see the power of his proud vassal humbled, he gradually fights his way, gains his dukedom, and overcomes competitors at an age when most of us are still under tutors and governors, extends his dominions far beyond the limits transmitted to him by his forefathers, and then leaves his native soil to seek other conquests, to win another kingdom, over which again he has no claim but the stammering will of a weak king and his own irresistible energy, and what is still more strange, securing the moral support of the world in his aggression, and winning for himself the position of an aggrieved person recovering his just and undoubted rights. Truly the Normans could have no better representative of their extraordinary power, and the conquest of England is well worthy of closing, as it does, the long series of brilliant acquisitions gained by strength of mind and hand and will. In sketching the history of the man, three battles mark the three decisive epochs of ducal domination. Val et Dune, Varaville and Hastings, and under these heads we will arrange his life up to the date of the conquest. Robert's best way to have secured the succession to his son would have been to have married the fair Harlotta. According to the opinions of those times, this would have removed the stain on William's birth, and bastard he could have been called no more. Too proud or too careless for this, 
Robert had satisfied himself on leaving for his pilgrimage by extorting an oath of allegiance to his bastard son from the nobles of Normandy and entrusting him to the guardianship of his cousin Alan of Brittany, who forgot the quarrel of a few years back and fulfilled the position of regent with honor and fidelity. As long as Robert lived, the nobles submitted in sullen silence. But the news of his death in 1035 was the signal for general anarchy. The curse of Talva found echo throughout the limits of the dukedom, and for twelve years the life of the young bastard was in peril. Taking advantage of his minority and the questionable character of his title, the nobles threw off all allegiance, entrenched themselves within their fortified castles, which sprang up on all sides, defied authority, and harassed the country with their private quarrels and assassinations. Among the most prominent of the rebels we find Roger de Tony, who had returned from his Spanish exploits to display the cruelties he had learnt in his warfare with the Moslem, William Talva de Belem, the inveterate enemy of the bastard, and the houses of Montgomery and Beaumont, the last three names hereafter to be well known in English history. Allen, attempting in vain to restrain these turbulent spirits, met his death by poison in 1039 before the stronghold of the Montgomerys. The other friends of the young duke fell victims by assassination, and William himself with difficulty escaped the same fate. Hitherto the disturbances in Normandy had taken the character of isolated rebellions of individual nobles struggling for their own independence, and there had been no organized opposition to William. Over these the untiring energy of William and his few hardy advisers triumphed. Now, warned by the rapidly developing powers of William, he was by this time nineteen or twenty, that they must strike at once if they would strike at all, the nobles in 1047 organized a widespread conspiracy. No claimants had as yet come forward to dispute the coronet of William, but now Guy, Count of Burgundy, the son of Renault and his wife Alice, sister of Richard III, claimed the duchy as his right by birth. His appeal was readily answered by the lords of Cotentin and Bessin, with whom he promised to share his conquest. This part of Normandy had longest retained the memory of its Scandinavian origin, and had long ago rebelled against the French tastes and sympathies of William Longsword. But probably it was rather the hope of independence than any national antagonism which now led them to rebel, since those districts east of the Dive, which Guy proposed to keep for himself, sided with the young duke. Around the standard of Guy also rallied all the factious nobles who had not hitherto been humbled, and thus a formidable coalition arose. William, awakened from his sleep at Valogne by the warning cry of his court fool, up, up, my lord duke, open, flee, delay his death, with difficulty escaped an attempted surprise, and flying to the strong castle of Falaise, his birthplace, summoned the faithful to his support. His authority was acknowledged by the districts east of the Dive, and by the towns and people generally, who, we are told, even in the Bessin and Cotentin, cursed the rebels, and in their hearts wished well to the duke. 
He then appealed to his suzerain Henry. Henry had hitherto tacitly sided with the rebels, and even seized the castle of Tillieres, which had been built by Richard the Good to strengthen his dominions on the side of Dreux. But now dreading, lest by thus supporting the revolt he might weaken his own power, he for the last time sided with the duke. The strife which ensued took the character of a war between the semi-Scandinavian Bessin and Cotentin of the West and the Romance element of the East, a division which, often noticeable before in the history of Normandy, was here to appear for the last time. The forces met at Valle dune in 1047 on a broad sloping plain some miles southeast of Caen, bounded to the west by the river Orne. Here a fierce hand-to-hand -hand encounter of mounted knights ensued. No footmen are mentioned, and the Norman archers, subsequently so famous, do not appear. On the left was marshaled the royal host against the men of the Cotentin. On the right, the Normans opposed the rebels from the Bessin. The Frenchmen, as they spurred their horses to the attack, raised their war cry of Montjoie Saint Denis, the Normans that of Dex A, to which the rebels answered by the names of local saints. The struggle was long and severe. Twice was Henry unhorsed. William, more fortunate than his royal ally, here first began his successful career in arms and struck down many a rebel knight. At last, the rebels gave ground and were beaten back, then turned and fled. Many were driven by the hot pursuit of their foes into the river Orne. Here they were either drowned or slain as they attempted to cross, and the mills, we are told, were choked by the bodies that floated down the stream. The results of this crushing defeat were decisive. Guy soon after came to terms and retired to Burgundy. The other nobles submitted, their castles were everywhere destroyed, and William, after a struggle of twelve years, found himself at last master of Normandy. His success had been entirely due to his energy and masterly ability, and his triumph was marked by singular leniency. But if the conduct of William after Valle Dune shows that he was no man of blood, but spared when he thought it could safely be done, the other traits of his character, his extreme severity, his impatience of insult, his revengeful spirit, are clearly portrayed in his treatment of the rebels of Alençon in 1049. The men of Alençon, stirred by William Talva de Belem, William's old enemy, in whose lordship they lay, admitted Geoffrey of Anjou into their town and rebelled against the duke. On his approach they spread out skins over the walls and beat them, shouting, Hides for the tanner, plenty of work for the tanner, in contemptuous allusion to his mother's lineage. William, angered by the gross insult, swore by the splendor of God that he would deal with the mockers as with a tree, whose branches are cut off with a pollarding axe, and terribly he kept his word. The town soon after fell, and William ordered thirty-two of the citizens to be brought before him. By his orders their hands and feet were chopped off, and the dismembered limbs thrown over the castle walls as earnests of his vengeance. The garrison, pitifully craving mercy, at once capitulated, and William, 
having strengthened the castle, retired in triumph to Rouen. End of section 11.